Welcome to Mama Talk Talks, A Different Take, a podcast where everyday people around the globe share a different take on everyday issues. I'm your host, Abi Mambo, and I'm pleased you're joining us today. Welcome. Hi, this is Michelle. Hi, good morning. All right, so we'll just get right into it. So it'd just be good to have your background. Mm-hmm. All right. I came to America when I was 17 years old, and I have lived here now in the States for the past, gosh, at this point, it's been about almost 20 years, oh, over 20 years I've been in the States now. Um, and then I went to Princeton, I went to Michigan Law, which is where we met. And then I feel like after I graduated from law school, I wanted to do something that was different than the typical path that a lot of law school graduates take, which is going into large law firms, especially from a law school like the one I went into. And I did do the large law firm thing for a bit. And as I was there, I realized that law firms talk a really big game when it comes to diversity, when it comes to inclusion. But you look at the reality of our numbers, you look at the reality of retention and the people who do make it to the partnership levels. And it's not a lot of people who look like me. Yeah. And I am black, I am female, and I realized that this is a challenge and we're not, in my opinion, talking about the realities behind that challenge. But it took me a while to understand why that was. And so after I was at law firms for a while, and I loved my law firms, I think they were great places to work. But again, I just felt like there wasn't a space where I was going to be advancing in my career there. And I thought I wanted to go teach. What I really wanted to do was to teach. I loved teaching. I loved talking to people. I loved engaging with audiences. I loved speaking in front of audiences. And so that's why after about a few more years at law firms, I decided to go and work for the Illinois Supreme Court. And then I also had my first kid at that point, and I really wanted to have an experience where I would be able to you know, do things with her and be home at a reasonable hour and have that raising a child experience, but still working because I really loved my job. And I was at least in a great position where we had a wonderful childcare provider. We could afford a childcare provider, so I was able to keep working. So those are all things that worked out really well. And so I worked for the Illinois Supreme Court. And while I was at the court, there was a great big focus on diversity from Illinois. Illinois was one of the first states to really require attorneys to engage with diversity in their learning process. And so while they were doing that, I was in charge of rolling out the diversity initiatives, making sure that when our our court looks at the diversity initiatives, they approved them, they approved the policies. I would share those policies and I would also review every single diversity program that lawyers would take for continuing education in Illinois. Mm-hmm. And in turn, in some cases around the country, since if you take them in Illinois, you probably take them somewhere else as well. And so I spent a long time doing that. I spent a long time looking at best practices, trying to understand what should you be teaching lawyers and law students and other professionals. And I did this for years. And then in 2017, I had an experience. So I would go around and I would do a lot of these trainings, right? I would talk about unconscious bias, which is one of the things I talk about a lot. I would talk about, you know, how everyone has unconscious bias. We can talk about unconscious bias in a little bit, but how unconscious bias essentially works is that your brain has these shortcuts and you have these categories that you form in your head and you're forming these categories over and over again. And it's so quick and it's so automatic that you start stereotyping the people that you meet. And then you apply those stereotypes and those form your initial and your long-term opinions of people. Mm -hmm. 
And then I'm not sure how familiar you are with what happened in Starbucks, but at Starbucks, you know, but in 2018, at this point, yeah. April 2018, two black men were arrested for sitting in a Starbucks. Yeah. And the conversation around that was, well, it's unconscious bias. You know, the, the person at Starbucks, she looked at them and she assumed who they were and she's called the police. And then for the rest of that year in 2018, all you would hear were all these stories about how all these people were getting arrested or people were calling the police on them because they were black and they mm-hmm. were doing things like barbecue in a park or babysitting a child. Yeah. And the conversation around that kept on being, it's unconscious bias, it's a conscious bias, it's a conscious bias. So then, and that was what I would say, I would travel around the country and I would talk about unconscious bias and I would talk about, you know, these shortcuts and how you can interrupt them and these strategies that you can use. And then I went home and my children's nanny is there. And one of the stories I tell when I talk about unconscious bias, and I do this in my TED Talk, is that I talk about how my children who are in America, they're biracial, so they're half black and they're half white. My husband is white and I'm black. And my children, look, they look white. They can pass for white in America. And I realize, and then because they can pass for white and I'm black, whenever I'm in my neighborhood and I'm with my kids and I'm taking them around, all of the white moms in my very white neighborhood assume I'm my children's nanny. And then we have conversations like, how much am I paid? Am I looking for work? I'm like, oh my gosh, what's wrong? Why are these people all trying to steal this nanny? Yeah. And so this happens for years. Like they, they call me the nanny all the time. And then I go back. I was like, okay, and then that's the example that I use when I talk about unconscious bias. You know, all of these moms are making these assumptions based on bias. And then I go home and my children's nanny is there one day after one of my trainings. My kids are asleep. And I realize I don't think I've ever actually told her this nanny story. And I want to tell her this nanny story. I want to see what she thinks about it. And I do. And I tell her, you know, oh my gosh, these white moms are calling me this nanny and it's you know, crazy. And she laughs. I thought she would laugh. But then she says something else. And this is something that has completely turned around how I perceive the work that I do. And she said, Michelle, it's nice when they talk to you. But you know what? Most of the time, they don't even talk to us. And I was like, that's right. Like, because all of the things that we are talking about when it comes to unconscious bias and how it relates in the workplace and who we hire and who Mm -hmm. we promote and the assumptions that we make about people, all of that is based on race. These people, these women aren't just making an assumption about me because I'm the nanny. These women are making an assumption about me because I am black. Yeah. And because I am black, they are assuming that I'm not the kind of person they would like to talk with, and I'm not the kind of person they can be friends with, and I'm not the kind of person they can sit down next to in the park. Because they are Black, that is why the police were called on the men who were at Starbucks. And because they are Black is why all of those other incidents of Black people being arrested happened. It is not because of unconscious bias. Unconscious bias may be the reason why they make the assumptions, but what they do next is not unconscious. That is a very conscious decision that is made. And because of that way, and because I realize that this is the reason we are doing this, and this is the thing we are not talking about. We are not talking about race. We are not talking about the identities that succeed in corporate America and the ones that do not succeed. We are saying people of color broadly. We are saying diversity broadly. We are trying to use things like diversity of thought. But when you look at the numbers and you look at the people who are not succeeding, it's the black and brown people. It's the LGBTQ plus people. It's the people who have marginalized identities who are excluded from the workplace. And until we get specific with our language and until we say, (laughs) 
this is the reason. And you can talk about privilege, you can talk about racism, you can talk about institutional discrimination, but you have to talk about it. And if we just cover it up by saying something like, well, it's unconscious bias and everyone has been, that's okay. Yeah. Then is it any wonder that people think that we aren't effective in our diversity training? Is it any wonder that marginalized minorities feel like there's no one actually listening to the stress and the struggles and the isolation and the demands for perfection that they go through? And so I left my job and I decided that was what I was going to do. I was tired of telling, especially black people, because I work with a lot of black people, I was tired of telling them that there is something wrong with you. That if you just do this one thing, if you yes. dress like this or speak like <laughs> this or talk like this or have this one person, like do all the things that you're supposed to do. Don't talk about your kids or your accent or change your clothes or don't talk about your background or the high school you went to. Change your first name. You do all of that, you will succeed. And I was like, no, that's just not true. We need to stop telling them that. The problem isn't them. The problem is the workplace. So let's change the workplace. Yeah. And that is what I set out to do a year and a half ago. And I had a TED Talk and I have a book deal. And the book that I have coming out is called Change the Rules, Change the World, because we need to change the rules of inclusion. And if we change the rules, then we can change the world for everyone. And that's the work that I do. And I love doing it. It has been the best year and a half that I could ever have possibly imagined with this job. Wonderful. I mean, again, I've just been kind of tracking your journey. I see things come on LinkedIn. And I think on a number of levels, she's, mm-hmm. living, the, she's living the dream, right? Because you're your own boss. And you're doing something that you love and something that is important and needed, especially at this Mm -hmm. time in our history. You know, there's a lot that you said just in your introduction there. And I want to just touch on a few things. The idea Mm -hmm. that we still have to have conversations about black moms in the park with their biracial children being called a nanny in 2019 and in 2020 Mm -hmm. is just old, right? And it's tired and it needs to be retired, right? Mm -hmm. It's just one of those things where I hear it and I go, really, we're still here? And it reminds Mm -hmm. me of the Red Table show. I think Red Table Talk, Jada Pinkett's show. Yeah, Jada. she Mm -hmm. She had Christine Davis from um, Mm -hmm. Sex and the City on there. And it was really interesting when she was talking about her adopted daughter who's black. And I don't know if you've watched that episode, but I was watching that thinking... Mm, I haven't seen it yet. You should. It's fascinating because she was talking about her daughter's hair, right? Which is a whole Mm -hmm. other thing. But what I found fascinating about it was when people see her with her daughter, they do not automatically assume she's the nanny. So to your point, mm-hmm. it's not so much that mismatched skin color automatically means that the adult is not the mom. In that instance, yeah. the natural assumption is, oh, she's probably an adopted child. In your case, it's mm-hmm. not that your daughter is adopted, it's your nanny. So the point yeah. you make about is not really unconscious. People are making conscious decisions. And even if it's unconscious bias, once you act on mm-hmm. it, it is a conscious action. Right. So, exactly. so that right there is really powerful for me. And as someone who's practiced mm-hmm. labor and employment law for nine years and continuing to talk about inclusion and diversity, I think it's really important that you're doing the kind of work that you're doing and that we're calling things by their mm-hmm. names. So outside of work, I do a lot of creative writing. And I keep telling people the reason why I do it is partly because we need to call things by their names. There's a way that we use right. language to gloss over things so that we can never really confront them, right? It's kind of like when we tell mm-hmm. children, grandpa has gone to a special place. It's a lot harder than saying grandpa died. Yeah. But that's what happened. Grandpa died, right? Mm-hmm. And unless yeah. we start confronting mm-hmm. things by calling them by their names, we're not really getting anywhere. So really big kudos on the work that you're doing. Now, just kind of stepping... And the thing with kids, and like I talk about kids a lot because... 
kids know. I mean, a lot of the people I, I work with and a lot of safety readers talking about how white parents in America don't talk about race with their kids. You know, like black parents, Hispanic parents, Asian parents, they do talk about race with their kids, but white parents don't. And I, one of the th- reasons I talk about that is, I mean, that is the basic example of privilege, right? If you don't need to talk about race with your children, that's because you don't see yourself as anything other than just the default and the norm. And so your kid doesn't have to understand what it means to be white. That is privilege. But it turns out that kids recognize racial differences as early as age four. I mean, they recognize it earlier than age four. So then they recognize age two and age three. And they recognize when people, your friends, your parents don't have friends of different colors than they are. They recognize when your parents only take them to doctors who are white. And they recognize when you only engage and encounter and surround yourself by people who are white. And then they realize what that means. It means that it's people who are white who are the superior race. And because they are the preferred race, and if we don't ever encounter anyone who is a different color from us, and not just that we don't encounter them, but they're not included in our peer group, and they're not in the books that we read, and they're not in the music that we listen to, and they're not on the TV shows, and they're not like mommy's boss at work, and they're not any of our relatives, and we never see them as peers or as equals. And then that assumption that somehow my skin color is better than their skin color starts at age two and three, and then it continues for the rest of their lives. And that is when we don't talk to our kids about race, that is the disservice that we are doing to them. The issue of kids is an interesting one because you and I have another thing in common, which is we're both immigrants. So I moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. when I was 16, grew up in Cameroon, where everyone was black. We have a colonial mm-hmm. history, and so the mm-hmm. sense of whiteness was there and its superiority. I always go back to the whole idea that a group of people sat down in 1884, 1885 around a table, right, and when Bismarck and divided up a continent amongst themselves. Yep. Whenever I think about right. that, I think the 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 sheer audacity of that is bewildering, right? But then I go back to it and I think in the 1800s and early 1900s, Africa was known as a dark continent. So there is something there right. that even though I didn't grow up around a lot of white people, you kind of said from the colonial context, you still have that some people are superior to others. But where I'm going with this yeah. is how did you find growing up outside the U.S., were there talks about race in your home growing up versus mm-hmm. America? So- Yeah, so I think, and the reason I think I am comfortable talking about race more than most Americans are is because in America, you grew up with this ideal of how everyone is colorblind. And I don't see race and I don't see color. I just look at people and I don't see their differences, which is BS. And we know that's BS. Everyone sees race, everyone sees color. And the choices that we make in our personal lives and the choices that we make in our professional lives clearly demonstrate that you absolutely do see race. You see in the neighborhood that you choose and the school that you send your kids to. And the reason I can talk about this is because I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the Caribbean. I grew up in the West Indies and I grew up in Jamaica and I grew up in Trinidad where we talk about race all the time. And but issues of colorism, issues of racism, issues of what it means to be white and have a legacy of whiteness in Jamaica and how that affects your prospects of success, what it means to have lighter skin versus darker skin. Mm-hmm. Those are conversations that I had now in Jamaica, conversations in Trinidad about with our high Indian population, Indian immigrant population, our Syrian immigrant population, our black population, all of those conversations that we have upon race and religion, those are conversations that we have. 
And does hey. it mean that the countries that grew in were, were less racist? I no. I mean, I don't. I think that we have significant racial problems in the Caribbean, clearly, but we talk about them and we have conversations about them. And what I, I keep finding in America, and and I'm not talking like America as a broad entity. I'm talking about individual people, like people who live a day-to-day life who have no language to really engage with race yeah. because they have been told their whole lives that Shh, you don't talk about race, don't mention the color of someone's skin. And then when they open a book, and in that book, recently, because it's a very new thing, adding people of color to books, which is huge, right? But you read this book, right? And it's only the people of color who are described by their race. Like you can describe the black people and the brown people as like every single shade under the sun, right? But the white person has long hair. The white person has blue eyes. The white person is never described by the color of their skin. And you have that reinforced your whole life. You start thinking that white is the color, that everyone is white, that flesh toned is normal, that flesh toned band-aids are fine. Like, and that is the default that everyone has, that everyone else is the difference. So those are the two parts, right? You can believe that you're colorblind because you don't see yourself as having a color. You just see yourself as the default. And then you never engage with conversations around race because you think, well, that's, I mean, that's the reality. Why would I talk about someone's race? It is rude to engage with race. One of the things I talk about a lot is this guess who game, right? So guess who is yes. this board game where you have to guess your opponent's pictures. They have a whole bunch of pictures on their board and they have one card in front of them. And you have to guess which card matches which of the pictures, right? And you have a bunch of pictures on your board and you have they have to guess which card matches your their picture, right? So it's very, you ask one question, does your person in your picture have blonde hair? Do they have blue eyes? So then researchers decided to do this whole guess who game. And, but they decided to use pictures of black and white people. So half the pictures are black, half the pictures are white. And then they had these 30 white people come into this room and play guess who with that. Now I would ask because I'm looking at these pictures and I would like to win this game and I'm looking at these pictures and I would say, is your person black? And that question, is your person black? I think the number was maybe 58% of the participants who played guests who could ask that question, is your person black? And then they brought in black people to play this game. And that question, is your person black? I think it was about 25% or so people actually were able to ask that question. But even when they asked the question, is your person black, they looked terrified. They looked scared. They were sweating. They were nervous. They were, they couldn't do it because you don't want to be called racist. So which, so you which don't want to be called racist scared. for simply asking, is someone black? And that is where we are stuck. Like we are not going to make any progress on any diversity initiative if we are too scared to engage with the reason someone is being excluded at the workplace. So which group, Michelle, was it that was scared to ask if your person was black? The white participants. So they only brought in white participants to play this game. Oh, so they bring in these it. white participants to play the game ah. and they could not ask each other, is the person black? And they definitely couldn't ask each other if the person was black when they had a black participant play against a white participant. That was even worse than actually having all white people. Like when you bring in a black person, they don't even want to mention skin color because they push back. There's another study that was done, um, and it's famous because they had to cancel this study. And these parents were brought in to talk about how they were investigating. How do you talk with your kids just generally? How do you engage with dialogue with your children? How do you communicate with them? But then the study starts, and some of the parents find out that what they're really going to talk about is how do you talk with your children about race? And that study had to be canceled. And it had to be canceled because almost all the white parents dropped out. And they dropped out because they did not talk with their kids about race. 
they just didn't they didn't know how to do it they didn't know feel that they were equipped to do it they didn't feel comfortable doing it they didn't think their kids were ready to hear about race whatever the reason they didn't talk to their kids about race and again you start with that and you continue with that your entire life but that's how hard it is to change the norm what's that study called i would like to read up on it it's in a book called nurture shock so if you read the book nurture shock she taught or they talk about the study in that book and they talk about why the study was canceled i think it's like chapter three or chapter four but you can read it in there and to learn about and there's a really good if you actually look up the time magazine article there's a really good time magazine article that interviews the researchers that ask them you know well what happened when you did this study and they tell you exactly what happened okay now we've talked about so to your original point i think it is i mean the fact that i am an immigrant and the fact that i did not grow up in america means that I don't have that taboo around talking mm-hmm. about race. And mm-hmm. so when I see those different outcomes for, especially, again, for Black and Hispanic and Asian people in the workplace and the people who are invisible in the workplace, you know, Native Americans who don't get any attention in diversity spectrum typically, people with special needs, all of that, when you don't see that and you don't see the real language around why we're excluding them, but it just seems like, oh, you know, they're the ones who can't succeed. They're the problems. You know, it's not us. It has nothing to do with how the workplace is built or structured. It's all on them. And you're like, it's not. Let's fix that. And let's do something about that. And I even challenge the notion that these populations are invisible, right? Because if they're invisible, yeah. you're not, you don't know they're there and you can't Mm-hmm. intentionally harm or exclude somebody that is not there. I think they're very visible and people are making yeah. decisions about their careers knowing that they're there. I think one yeah. of the things that I've had yep. to myself be conscious about is, and to your earlier point about unconscious bias, right? It's unconscious to the point where you act on it and then you've taken conscious action. Mm-hmm. And so a person may be invisible to the point where if you're actually making workplace decisions that adversely impact their terms and conditions of employment, they are not invisible. They are suffering Mm -hmm. (laughs) adverse impact from your actions. So that's one thing that it's taken me a while to kind of even adjust my my mind. Because I think for a long time, I did buy into the unconscious bias. And I think unconscious bias is real. I guess the question in all Mm -hmm. the work you've been doing in the last year and a half, so in a sense, sometimes when you're talking to, and this is an assumption, so correct me if I'm wrong, if you're talking to black and brown populations, in a sense, do you feel like you're preaching to the choir versus when you're talking to white Mm -hmm. people? Or do you see it across the board? Usually my groups are mixed, right? So typically they're mixed. But if there is other, I mean, by mixed, I mean, again, we're talking about my groups when I speak in like the global workplace, right? So um, especially since I speak a lot of my species are in the States, predominantly my groups are predominantly white because that is the predominant majority, especially when we're doing leadership trainings, right? My group is usually very white. But even when you speak to mixed audiences, and this is what I love about the work that I do, what happens after every program that I do is that there are two types of people who come together. There's many types, but let's just focus on two of them. There are the, you know, the white male leaders who are like, all oh, like they, eyes have been opened. They did not, I mean, as much as we like to say it is intentional for a lot of people, it's not. Like they honestly did not recognize that they were passing over for work or they were questioning competencies and they didn't understand the step. I do a lot of statistics, a lot of data, and they just didn't see it, right? And so they come up and they talk about, you know, this, you know, thank you, this, I'm so grateful. Thank you for sharing this. Thank you for talking about race in America. Thank you for having a real conversation. This is the best diversity program I've ever been to. I was like, of course, thank you so much. And then you have the other group, which are the marginalized employees. And they're always crying because what happens with them is that they feel validated. Yeah. When I talk about microaggressions, when I talk about stereotypes, when I talk about, when I, when I give the examples of 
being not being invited to the inner circles. And when I talk about the the manager who walks past your office every day, but they pop into the office of the young white man, but they always pass the young black woman's office. And I give them, and they feel like finally someone is giving voice to the experiences yeah. that they cannot talk about themselves. And they cannot talk about it themselves because their jobs will be on the line. And what usually happens is that they stay and they deal with these microaggressions day in and day out and over. And I call it the death by a thousand cuts because it cuts you down over and over and over and over and over again. And oftentimes so there's no that. one else in the office that you can talk to who gets it. That's the other part, right? Nope. Is the isolation. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And there's no one you talk to. I mean, you're usually the only. You are always having I me mean, like, when I, mean, I talk about things like when black people have to be perfect, when they can't wear jeans on casual Fridays, when they stumble, they, you know, they, they, that stumble is remembered. They don't get the second chances. And, you know, and they come up to me after and they're just like, Michelle, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing what it is like to be me. Someone told me recently, this was like therapy. It was great. And then if I ever have, and then I have some audiences where it's like, I, it's like I do diversity summits or I do um, retreats. And then we, we get into the, how can you navigate this? Mm-hmm. Not that I'm not telling you to change the clothes. I don't want you to assimilate. And this is my big thing. I think if we are focusing on diversity, you have to focus on authenticity and not just authenticity. Like, oh, I can bring my whole self to work. That's important, right? But understand what that means to bring your whole self to work. Yes. Understand that it means <laughs> that if you are bringing in diversity, people, they have different values. They have different ways of working. They have different expectations and they can work successfully if they are allowed to bring those into the workplace. And that is what authenticity is. And that is what I think. And I've said this many times, that is what is missing from our diversity language. When we tell people that in order to succeed here, all you need to do is assimilate, you're really telling them in order to succeed here, you are not good enough. And who you are and the identities that you have and your ancestors and the family history and all the things that make you you, no, we don't want that here. You just need to be more like Dave. And that's what I'm trying to get rid of. And so when I talk about it, marginalized employee-only group, that's when we go into it. That's when we talk about how can you bring in your values? How can you understand what your values are? How can you find someone who is going to invest in you and to invest in your career? How can you roadmap your career? How can you find jobs within this company and projects within this company that match what you are able to do? Because I want to empower them to know that you do belong here and there is a space for you to succeed. There's a lot in there about, and it rings so true to me, the whole idea of someone finally gets me, right? It's the same mm-hmm. thing when you walk, when a new employee walks into a room, and if you're Black, for example, and a new Black employee walks in, it's almost like a sigh of relief, like, ah, without even knowing yeah. that it's like, oh. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, you know, a lot of people don't understand what that is, is very interesting. So for me, now I've gotten to a point where I'm quite comfortable talking about it, but I do make jokes about the fact that having moved to Singapore, one of the things that was hard for me to adjust to is I can't find anyone to do my hair. Now, someone might say, this is a frivolous thing. What about hair? But whether we like it or not, for a lot of us, hair is just a part. It's there, right? It's there. And if everybody else has a chance to go to the hair salon and get their hair done, I want that too. 
And I watched yeah, this, um, yeah. this amazing video by the representative from Boston. Um, Ayanna, yeah. Yes, yes. That mm -hmm. was powerful. That was fantastic. That was really powerful. For many reasons, I love Senegalese twist, as you can tell. I'm, I'm wearing twist right now. Mm -hmm. But that line, that line toward the end where she said, people are trying to console me and they say it's just hair, but I still want it. That's the difference, mm -hmm. right? It's we can't teach people to just live without because, right? It's adjust your circumstances. Well, if I love you that have, phrase. Yeah, yeah. If you have access to these opportunities and you, you can get them, why, why should I be satisfied with less just because? It's mm -hmm. talking about some of these things that get minimized. Well, it's just hair or it's just this and it's just that. It's one of the ways to me that I've seen how what we need as women and as you know, racial minorities in the American context, because in Asia it's different. Right? When I talk about diversity, it's, it's a little bit different, right? But that yeah. whole sense that what we need is not as important or it's not as valued as what everybody else needs. And I find that quite, quite mm -hmm. troubling. Who gets to say, who gets to decide what you should or shouldn't live without? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, who gets to decide that is the majority. And that, you know, and that how you phrase that is just so compelling to me because that is very much what it means to be a minority. You don't get that voice and saying what matters to you. I mean, there is so many examples I've heard about. So in the States, there's this big thing called blowout bars, right? So you go and you get your hair blown out. <laughs> and so all of these companies are like trying to arrange all these women events at blowout bars. And so many black women have come to me and said, Michelle, they want me to go to a white hair salon and get my hair wet and then blow dry it? Do they not know what it will look like at the end of this? And also, I have extensions. It's not even going to work. But they don't get that, right? And so the assumption is, well, I have all of these women who want this event, and I'm so sorry about the three black women. You're just going to have to deal with it. What are you going to do? They're going to sit outside of the salon and not go in? Is it not better to find something that everyone can, can participate do. in? So what happens is that the three black women aren't going to go to that salon, and they're going to miss out on the networking, and they're going to miss out on the team building and the community love. And that's and just because they are the minority and their voice is not as recognized as that of the majority. And though, I mean, that's exactly what you said. Like, who gets to decide what is not important to me? Yeah. And you know, you talk about blood bars. I have a story for you. And it's, mm -hmm. it's one that I've grappled with because I was in San Francisco in, I think it was July. And for some reason, I decided I didn't want to wear my fro that day. So I'm going to go to one of these places and, and just blow it out, right? And they said... It was, I don't know how much it cost, but 45 minutes in and out. So I specifically asked, you see my hair, right? Do you handle this kind of hair? And they yeah. said, yes. So I went in, I should have known better, went in, got it washed and sat in the chair. And the woman who was doing my hair was biracial. She identifies as black. Mm -hmm. And what happened was really interesting. I had an empty chair to my left and one to my right. And the two stylists had, in the time I was sitting in that chair, so they have a commitment that, you know, you'll be there for 45 minutes. I was there for an hour and a half, more than that. Ooh. And in that time, the two stylists, on the other hand, had two or three customers come in and out. Both, you know, both of them had, mm -hmm. you know, white women customers who came in, washed, left. And so I was there with a friend and I was so grateful for her because she taught me something that I was not paying attention to. While I was sitting there, my stylist just kept huffing and puffing under her breath, right? And she was saying things like, I've told them to these tools don't work on black hair. I've told them to get me the right tools. This is not blow drying your hair the right way. It's not straightening the right way, all of that talk. And I, and I felt bad for her because literally it took my hair almost three times as long as everybody else's. The calculus I didn't mm -hmm. make that my very aware friend made was, 
do you know how much more money the other two women just made compared to her? And if you think about it in terms of right. tips, right? She's made now a mm -hmm. third of the tips that the other two women have made. So she was looking at it very much right. from an equity perspective. And I hadn't even thought about that. She said, look, we're going to have to tip her more than we normally would because it's not your fault, but it's not her fault mm -hmm. that, you know, the salon didn't mm -hmm. give her the tools she good. needed. And yeah. I took a giant step back, right, and reflected on the pay equity issue. And I thought, mm -hmm. my goodness, this is how it works. In this one little example, right, she's just lost out on a significant amount of money compared to the other two because they've had three customers, she's had one. And if you're paid on the number of customers mm -hmm. that come in and you factor in tips, I mean, she's far behind. So between the two of us, we actually tripled the tip and I worked out bitter. Oh, that's good. I worked out bitter, but not at her. And I said, I left a note at the front desk to say, you know what? If you are going to have customers with my kind of hair, you need to get the right tools to allow your stylist to mm -hmm. do their work. Take that back to the workplace. And you're talking about people with disabilities or for whatever reason, they're not, you know, they, they're somehow handicapped in the workplace. Do they have the right tools to get the work done, right? And for me, that was really mm -hmm. an aha moment in terms of we are not all equipped with the same tools and we shouldn't all be equipped with the same tools. We should have the tools we need to get yes. our jobs done. So that yeah. is really stuck and with that me. And that's equity right there, right? That is how do you give people the tools that they need to succeed? And if you're just giving everyone what you're, you give everyone the same tools, People are gonna not gonna work. It's not gonna work, right? It's, that is not how it, it's not gonna. Work. You're not gonna succeed if you have the same tools. But if you give people the tools that can help them succeed, that is equity, and that's how that works. So, I mean, Michelle, it's been really fantastic having this conversation. It, it feels oh, a little great. bit for me like ah, somebody who gets it. But I have <laughs> I have a few questions for you before we close. One of them is just. Have you taken your work outside the U.S.? Because I'm curious as to how it lands other places. Because mm -hmm. sitting outside the U.S., I've been outside of the U.S. now since 2016. And I was in South Africa first, which has a lot of racial issues. But, you know, we have a black majority. And then now in Singapore, it's not really talked about. So I'm interested in how this discourse is landing outside the U.S. If you've had the opportunity to talk outside the U.S., is it the same thing? Is it different? Mm -mm, different. So what happens outside the U.S. is that you talk a lot more about cultural differences. Well, there's two. You talk a lot about gender differences because I have yet to meet a single country that has gender parity. And they do have a lot of initiatives around gender, but we're still, you know, we're still having women who don't, who don't, aren't, aren't in equal positions as men. But you also talk about cultures. You talk about religious differences. You talk about how people are coming into these different countries from other countries, or they have been in those countries for many, many years, and they're still not integrated. And they're still, their values and their differences are still not recognized as the majority. You can still talk about privilege. You can still talk about what it's like when you are the majority, whether it's race or religion or culture or gender, and the privileges that you get because of that. And then we talk a lot about how can you engage with difference? How can you recognize that people are different and either mentor them as they're different or engage with them as they're different or give them tools because they're different or have conversations because they're different? Like, I mean, we're not, this conversation is about the U.S. political system, but one of the things I talk about that works really well with international audiences is when people have such different values and those different values conflict in the workplace. How can we engage with those values, have conversations around them, 
take different perspectives, incorporate those perspectives into the work that we do, and we may not change our opinion, but at least we have a dialogue about it. At least we were respectful about it. How do we ensure that we have that basic level of respect with each other? And that it starts with recognizing their different perspectives, recognizing their different values, recognizing how those values are incorporated into the work that they do. Every country is different, and that's really the challenge when it comes to diversity. Like America, we have different regions, but the challenge of America and race in America is a very tangible knowledge to me, right? But the challenges of race and difference in cultures and religions in Singapore is going to be different than it is in Britain. It's going to be different than it is in Brazil. And so you just have to figure out what country are you working with? What population are you working with? What are the challenges that they are seeing? And how is it that you as a trainer can come in, recognize those challenges and give them tools to design equitable solutions for everyone? So for people who are listening, going into work on Monday to Friday night here, what are some things we can start to do to interrupt? So we all acknowledge, yes, it's unconscious bias. And the problem is when you actually act on your bias. Mm-hmm. So what are some things people can actually do to start to arrest some of their biases and to interrogate? And you, you talked earlier on about the fact that people don't have the language or the words to engage race in America. So what are some things that, you know, people who really want to engage this from a very positive intent, how can they start to actually have these conversations, especially in the workplace? Mm -hmm. I would start with knowing why you're going into conversation again, talking about what's happening in politics and Brexit and in the U.S. and around elections. If you are going into a conversation with someone intending to win a debate, if you are going into conversation with someone intending to score points on them and say, well, they, now they'll understand why they're wrong, you will never do that. Think about the last time someone convinced you that you were wrong. <laughs> so what I try and encourage people is that let's start with listening to each other. Listen to someone else's point of view. You never have to agree with them. You do not have to leave any conversation agreeing with someone else. But please listen to what they have to say and don't try to convince them that they are wrong. And while you are listening, listen to perspectives that have not been told in the workplace. And those are often the perspectives of marginalized minorities. Listen to their stories and don't tell them their stories are invalid. Don't tell them their stories are untrue. Don't tell them that, oh, that would never happen here. Yes. Because their stories are true and their stories are valid. And the more that we discount them, the more invalidated they feel. So do be do the respectful job of listening to other people and don't gaslight them when they tell you that this has happened to them. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want people to do is be objective. So looking at your processes, looking at your hiring and your recruiting and your promoting, think about are you really being objective in how you promote people, in how you interview people, in who is mentored? What are the competencies that you're requiring people to fulfill? Do you, are they public? Are they known to everyone? Or is there really only an in-group that knows how they can succeed yes. and an out-group? Well, yep. every once in a while that out-group will succeed, but that's only because they got really lucky. Give me competencies. Give me skills that tell me what I need to do to succeed. And at the same time, when you are drawing conclusions about people, which we all do, and we all make assumptions of people, there's, I will give that for the universality of bias. Be objective. Give yourself the facts. If you think someone is, you tell someone she's not qualified for this team. What does that mean qualified? Tell me the evidence. And then when you're looking at the evidence, the person that you did put in that position, the person you did hire, the one who you thought was qualified or the right fit, which are often code words in America for white, that person that you put into that position, what skills did they bring to the table? What evidence do you have 
to show them that you, that they are able to do this and this person is not. You have to justify your biases because if you are not giving evidence to buttress your biases, then you are going to fall into the easy assumptions, which are in America, that white equals competence and other colors do not. And that is the assumption that we are trying to interrupt every day. The third thing I want people to check is also look at who you are mentoring. Look at who you are investing in. There is a lot talking about right now our older employees who are retiring and they have all these, you know, this great work to pass down and these great clients and customers to pass down. Who are you passing that down to? Think about people who you are bringing into, who are you championing? Who are you advocating for? Understand that. And then the last thing, well, I'll say two more things. One more thing is I want you to keep track for one day things that surprised you, assumptions that you made. And when you found out that they were wrong, you were surprised about them. Like, and some of the things I say are like, I was surprised when I, you know, when, when I found out that my new 45 year old woman hire does not have kids or you know, I was surprised when I found out that the black security guard doesn't watch basketball, right? <laughs> Understand why you were surprised. surprised by like, that. Yeah. Why, why were you surprised? Like, why were you surprised that the black security guard likes Broadway musicals? Because you are putting people in the box. And until we recognize that we are putting people in the box and we're stereotypically, stereotypically putting them in this box, then we aren't going to change things. And the last thing I have is that I want you to go around in your workplace and when you see someone who is being excluded, when you see someone who doesn't feel like they belong, or when someone gets hired and they are a minority in your workplace, take them out to coffee, ask them out to dinner, take them out to lunch, make them feel included. You know, because people stay because they have good work, sure, but you know why people really stay at their job? They really stay if they feel like they belong, yeah. if they feel that they are valued, if they feel that they are respected, if they feel that they are included. And so when we talk about belonging, which is what diversity, inclusion, and equity is turning into, it's turning into diversity, equity, and belonging, DEB, it's because we recognize that that is the core of the human experience. You want to belong in the place that you're in. So do that work and help someone belong. And when you see something problematic and when you see someone say something or you get an email where someone makes a joke about a transgender hire or there's a meme sent around or the person with a depression or whatever it is, when you see that and you are in that room where the joke is being made or you are sitting in that meeting where someone tells a woman, please, you you know, tells a woman, dear one has to take a note, stand up and speak about it because you have the power to do that. And you are able to do that when so many of us cannot. So I'm asking you to be an upstander and be an ally and be someone who really interrupts that from the start. That's what I'm asking people to do. Thank you so much for that. One thing that has definitely stuck with me because I think we're all guilty of this and guilty of our biases and acting on our biases, but it's, it's the point you made around buttress, have evidence. For your bias because mm-hmm. i think sometimes biases are valid right what you thought initially yep. actually turns out to be what it is but it's a question of when you mm-hmm. have it interrogated engage it and then have a valid reason to back it up i think that's really important because we yep. want to live in a world where we're telling people well you don't have biases because you cannot help but have those they're innate but that's really really helpful thank you michelle Good. you touched on something thank that you darling <laughs> You touched on something that's near and dear to my heart, colorism. And so I will just mm-hmm. have to table that for another time so I can just invite you back to, <laughs> to a different Our take. Our next conversation <laughs> yes. is Chicago time. Yes. <laughs> Anytime. I'm so happy to do it. And if you need anything else, and any, if, you know, any, if anyone's listening, please reach out to me. Reach out and talk because that's what we really want. We want you to feel seen. We want you to feel respected. And I really want people to change the world. So that's all for me. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you having so me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. 
anytime. All right. All right. Well, go have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy it. And I will talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Michelle. I hope you enjoyed today's show. Please share your thoughts in the comment section or by emailing ab at mamatalktalk.com. Continue the conversation in your homes and communities. And when you join us next week, invite a friend or many. For more diverse perspectives on everyday issues from everyday people around the globe, subscribe to our podcast at mamatalktalk.com forward slash a different take. And join our online community by following us on Twitter and Instagram. Until we meet again, I'm your host, A.B. Mambo, Sigashina, stay well.